Today we're going to be in Titus 1. And the last time we pretty much did 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, we went through the letters from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. And uh, today we're going to really start Titus, which is very similar. Both of these men, the Apostle Paul knew, had a hand in leading them to the Lord. They traveled with him. Uh, They were younger, it appears. He was pouring into them. And they really helped after Paul was executed to continue the, the work that was going on in the faith and in the church, uh, giving the gospel, the free gift of salvation of Jesus Christ to everyone. And I just want to go through a, an overview, as I always do. Some of you may say, oh, Titus, I don't think I've ever read that. What, what's it all about? So I always love when I start a new letter, a new book, to go into an overview. Titus, why was it written? Well, it was to set the church of Crete in order. And it's possible that Titus saw all the, or oversaw all the local fellowships on the island of Crete. Now understand, in our Western mind today, we look at the church as a building. But the church really is not a building. According to the scripture, the church is the people within the building. That's who God loves, the people, not the building. So they had probably spread out different fellowships, different house churches, Uh, and Titus would go along and just make sure everything was in order and they were preaching the proper doctrine. Who was it written to? Well, Titus, again, traveling companion, uh, somebody who was mentored by Paul. He was mentioned throughout scriptures and other books and letters. You'll find his name, and Paul had a high regard for him. And where was this? Well, it's Crete. Uh, He's Titus is overseeing the island of Crete. Now, Crete, if you are familiar with the Mediterranean, it's the Um, It it intersects with the Aegean Sea. It's the second largest island in the Mediterranean next to Cyprus, which we saw the the missionary journeys went through Cyprus as well. So this is what you have going on here. There was a Greek influence, heavily Greek influence, but also a Jewish population. And in the book of Acts, on Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was given, there were Cretans, uh, those from Crete, who no doubt brought that message and wow you should have seen what happened the holy spirit worked and the disciples were speaking in tongues and all these things so they went back to crete and brought that back as well that information now today the majority of cretans i actually went online and i was looking i was like gee i don't know much about crete so i was i was curious so i was doing a little research on crete but cretans consider themselves overwhelming majority some form of christian christianity And they look at Easter or Resurrection Sunday as their most important holiday. So we can say that maybe Paul and Titus did a pretty good job over here. And it gets even more fascinating when you find out that when the letter was written to Titus, that Cretans had a bad reputation. They had bad behavior and they were unscrupulous with money. So... As a matter of fact, in our old vernacular, we don't really use it that much anymore, but if you've ever heard someone say, hey, you know, you're just a Cretan. Cretan was a derogatory term because they had such a bad reputation. So you see this, this turnaround and uh, this change in these inhabitants of this island. When was it written? A.D. 63, right around prior to 2 Timothy, about the same time as 1 Timothy, And we can see these two letters and these two men in a lot of similarities. And what's amazing, when Jesus was on the earth, he confined himself as the son of God to human form. And he said to his followers, 
followers, you know, regarding his miracles and his works, that you will do even greater works than these. Now, at first, if you're a follower, you say, Jesus, we see you raise people from the dead, you know, heal the lame. How could that be? But what he was speaking about was aggregately. When the Lord was to, to leave and take his rightful throne in the heavenlies, his believers would be filled with the Holy Spirit and aggregately they would be able to do uh, much bigger numbers than Jesus did while he was on the earth because of his confinement to a human form. So we can see that Paul emulates this in that he knows that his time is eventually going to be short. So he pours into Titus and Timothy and others. Uh, and when he dies, they can continue that work and do more than he could have done. So we're going to jump in now that we have that background with verse 1. Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which is according to godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So there's a lot in here in this introduction. He says a few things. I'm just going to take a snapshot of some of these phrases. Number one, the faith of God's elect. And we know in First Peter that it says that God's election, his choosing of us, is according to his foreknowledge. He knows in advance who's going to respond to the gospel. And I think the point here in ministry, remember, he's speaking to Titus as a ministry leader. The point here is, listen, don't stress. You give the gospel, you preach the good word, and it's up to God who becomes saved, who doesn't, who changes, who doesn't. No stress. We serve with joy. He says, acknowledging the truth according to godliness. So in other words, we're acknowledging the truth in our mind, but it has to be according to godliness. In other words, behavior has to follow mindset. And we know that if we, especially in leadership, say one thing and do something else, the word hypocrite is thrown out. So what he's saying is this godliness has to follow this mindset. They work hand in hand. And we know that faith is even under attack. He speaks about the truth here. Today, truth is relative. What truth? Your truth, my truth, well, in mathematics, if we mess up equations and we're an engineer and we don't look at numbers absolutely and how they're supposed to be counted, we can totally screw up the building we're trying to build. Well, you know that measurement, your measurement's a few feet off, mine's, hey, your truth, my truth, let's just build a building. It doesn't work like that. It can't work like that. So why would we apply that to spiritual things? It's the same principle. And furthermore, spiritual things are eternal. So actually, Dr. Uh, Dr. Joseph Youssef wrote a book, When the Crosses Are Gone. And he speaks about, this man comes from Egypt. And he said, as, as Christians in Egypt, we respected you know, American Christians. He goes, but your country now is starting to either water down the gospel or it's being attacked so much that he wrote this book. It's a wake-up call to American Christians. When the crosses are gone. I'm eventually going to get around to reading it, but I read some of, of what's about it, what it's about. Verse 2, he says, the hope of eternal life promised by God before time and a God who cannot lie. So here's the situation. God knew we were going to mess up. He knew we were going to sin. And he already had a plan ready. He had a promise to give us. He had a promise of reconciliation. He had a solution. 
And this is what we fall back on in difficult times, that A, God does promise us certain things that we can lay hold of, and two, that God cannot lie. And this is a hope for any of our predicaments. Even if we don't particularly feel loved or we feel saved, this is my issue with denominations that have a, an emotions-based foundation. Because when I'm manic and I'm excited, God loves me and everything's great. But when I'm depressed, I don't feel like God loves me. Nobody loves me. And that's not the case. These promises are evident regardless of the up and down swings of our emotions. I want to talk to you about a study that was done many years ago. How many of you are familiar with the, the Duke University study with uh, Norwegian wharf rats? Nobody? <laughs> okay. This was the actual Duke University psychology department. Now listen to this study. It's pretty fascinating. So they take these wharf rats and they put them in a tub of water and they make them tread water. Otherwise, they drown. So what they do as well is they don't let them get to the sides to get out of the tub. So these little guys are there like probably, you know, I didn't see the study, but I could just, I don't know how they tread water, but I'm kind of guessing here. So they're treading water, trying not to drown. And what they found was right around the 17-minute mark, they would sink. They would drown. Well, it gets better. What they did was they literally lent them a hand and they would take the rats at that 17-minute mark as they went under, and they would pull them out of the tub. And they would take the rats, and they would dry them off and make it nice and warm, give them a cage, give them some food and some water, and let them repair, let them recover from this trauma that they experienced. And then after three days, they would take them, put them back in the tub. <laughs> How mean, huh? <laughs> and what they found was that the rats not only lasted the 17 minutes, they actually were able to tread water for over 30 hours. Yeah, shocking, isn't it? You can look this up. This is a real study that was done. And one of the observers said, the observers said, well, it's like they had some sort of salvation experience. Isn't that amazing? Well, it gets better. You see, these rats knew that there was a hand that had come and pulled them out. So they found it in themselves to tread water longer. This was a hope, believe it or not, that the rats had, that maybe that hand will come back and pull me out again. Now, I will say this to you. Some of you, and I'm not saying anyone's a rat, but let me make the analogy. Some of us in difficult times feel like those rats. And I've heard it from some of you. You know, I give up, I quit. I'm not doing this anymore. I put my hands up and you're ready to go underneath the water. But let me tell you something. The rats had an observer who didn't care about the rats. And they were able to find it in themselves because they knew of this experience. But we have the Holy Spirit. We have something far greater. So when I look at this word hope, I don't want to bounce off of it. I don't want to glance off of it. I want you to really understand what this word hope means. In the Greek, there's the word confident and expectation attached to it. And just like the rats thought that a hand might come and pick them up again, we know that there's someone greater who can help us to go further, to help us to endure more. We have the hope of God. We have the hope of his promises. And in the meantime, we have the Holy Spirit. Now, some of us, I have to say that maybe we need to stop struggling, stop striving, 
before that hand can come and lift you out of your situation. And I've been there. I, I can be a little type A. You know, Lord, I'm just going to try this one more thing, and I'm just going to go in this direction. He's like, okay, whenever you're ready, I'm here. You know? It's hard for him to help us when we're trying to do things that are not allowing him to help us. Do you see what I'm saying? So there was a good study there. Verse 4, he says, my true son in the common faith, or this word in the Greek is birth son. Now, this is odd because Titus was a Greek and Paul was a devout Jew. Before he became a Christian, he was a devout Christian leader and he was a, a legalistic leader and he was a Pharisee. And if he passed Timothy on the street and Timothy walked in, or excuse me, I'm, I knew I was going to do that. We've been in Timothy for two months. I meant Titus. So if Titus passed in front of him as a Greek and the Apostle Paul was pre-conversion, the dust that he kicked up, and this is what they would do back then, if that dust from that Gentile got onto him, he would have had to go home and wash because he would have been defiled. Now here he's calling this man my true son in the faith. Isn't that amazing how through the blood of Christ, through the cross, that people who would never be friends, who would never even look at each other, would come together under the cross? Yeah, good stuff. And I would say this to you as well. Or, I, I mean, when I ask myself, who is my family? Like Jesus said, his biological mother and his brothers were outside waiting to see them, waiting to see him. And he said, who are my mother and my brothers, those who do the will of God? And we'll find that if you're on fire for the Lord, that there will be others that you will be close to, even closer than bio biology, um, you'll be closer to them based on that common bond in Christ. Verse 5, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Ordaining qualified elders. Again, we've seen it in Timothy's uh, letters uh, to Timothy, and now we're seeing this in the letter to Titus. He says, for this reason I left you in Crete, to appoint elders. There needed to be some leadership. There needed to be some oversight. And set in order the things that are lacking. This word in the Greek is epidiorthoo, where we get the word orthopedics from to set a bone, to straighten it, to keep it from being crooked so it could mend. So there was some problems in this church. Now, this wasn't a, you know, we don't read this and say, oh, boy, he's a little bit controlling here. No, because when the truth is, is being pulled away from, it starts to get watered down. It starts to disintegrate, and we wouldn't have the benefit of the truth if they didn't do these things. Think about that. And we need to fight and, and you know, be concerned and uh, educate ourselves so that the truth today doesn't get watered down. Now, just there's two, two words here. Number one is elder in verse 5 and bishop in verse 7. Now, the elder is really a person's... Uh, you know, his personhood in life. An elder is, has some uh, maturity. He has some time. He has some wisdom. 
and a bishop is more of an overseer, so this is his position. But these two words are interchangeable, as we see. Right? In times, we're going to act in an in in official capacity, but we also have to have the character that backs up why we're in that office. So the first one is, and I'm not going to go through these too much because we did this in uh, the letters to Timothy, but number one, I'll do well, number one is blameless, two, husband of one, wife, three, faithful children, not accused of incorrigibility or insubordination. Now, when we take all the pastoral letters together, there is a requirement for the family. Right? The husband, the father, needs to have his house in order, starting with himself before he looks to anyone else. But, and again, we take these all together, the wife, the children, there's, you know, we're not perfect. No family is perfect. But we need to have our house in order because here's the concept. How can we run the church if we can't run our own homes? There's hypocrisy there. So we go from the home to the church. And in number four, he says to be blameless as a steward of God. How does a man oversee God's work in the church? And I would add, especially finances, especially finances in the culture that we live in. Is his spiritual house in order? Does his actions cause debt or some type of situation like that? And the word for steward was back then you would understand a steward as a person who served a person greater than them. And they were given oversight over that greater person's possessions. And how do you handle them? We see that a lot in the parables. So as, as men of God, as leaders, how do we handle the things of God? I was just reading an article. I don't know why I read the news anymore, especially when it comes to who's running this country. You know, it says that these po- there's programs out there that billions of dollars are being poured into, and these budgets are overlapping. So let's say there's $100 billion for a program. Well, another budget is throwing another $100 billion when they didn't account for $200 billion. So nobody's watching the money. It just keeps going into these pools, disappearing. Companies are going bankrupt. Who, who's at the rudder? Who's at the helm of our country? So they are poor, poor stewards. And I think they will be judged in many ways, the federal leaders of this country. But certainly one aspect will be that they're poor stewards. You know, we're going way into debt and it's out of control. But that shouldn't happen in the church. And it's interesting because in the church, you can't raise taxes. There are no taxes. So, so those who lead the church have to take the money that's available through donations and use it wisely and be, you know, frugal sometimes with it. Okay? So let's move on. Group six to nine is very interesting. Um, or five through eight, where am I here? Yeah, five through eight. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent. So we're not looking here for somebody who's an unbridled maverick. We're looking for somebody who has some self-control. So number one, not self-willed, not overbearing, not inflexible. Sometimes I have an idea in my head about doing something, and I meet with my leaders, and I go, I kind of have this idea, but I'm not completely sold on it. Tell me where I'm going wrong here. Make your case. You know, and I'll listen. Okay, yeah, that probably wasn't a really good idea. But that's, you know, we can't be so rigid. As Chuck Smith said, uh, blessed are the flexible because they will not be broken. It's a good point. Six, not quick-tempered. Someone who controls his anger. And I would add passions or lusts. Anything that drives us has to be controlled when we serve God. Uh, Seven, not given to wine. An addictive or compulsive personality does not work. In God's economy. Eight, not violent. And I'll, I'll go through this grouping together uh, at the end of this list here. 
And nine, not greedy for money. And I'll say this again. It's perfectly fine to be a millionaire. There's nothing sinful about having wealth. However, if your desire is to get into ministry to accumulate wealth, that's wrong. That is absolutely wrong. And you see some of these ministries, they're so tremendous that you can't get to the pastor. You can't touch him. He's a superstar. And it just becomes a big machine or a big beast, and you have to keep feeding the beast. And the problem is that when a a ministry is is so tremendous and there's so much overhead, you've got to keep now everybody happy so they keep sending in donations to keep going. That's a problem. Because then you can't discipline anyone. Then you can't, then you start to compromise. And before you know it, it just becomes a puff ministry. You just tell people what they want to hear and you're not helping them. And we'll talk more about rebuke uh, a little further down. I would say this as well, not greedy for money. Let's move ministry aside. This can also apply to, are you a fair business person? How do you treat those that you serve, your clients? You know, do we, do we rip them off? Do we charge them extra? Because I want to be comfortable. I'm doing this for my family. But what about the person whose family you're taking the money from? You see, it, it all works together. Uh, number 10, hospitable. Do we bless others with what God has blessed us? Or do we just accumulate wealth and hoard it? Right? That's important. Uh, you know, there are some that... And I actually know, I've seen a family that they roped off, cordoned off certain portions of their house with posts and those like fuzzy velvet ropes, uh, like in the museums. Is your house a museum? Is it off limits to people? Is it your God, your prized possession? You know, back in the Middle East, when this was written uh, in these areas or old Europe, people were hospitable. You know, they would welcome you. You know, my house is your house. Mi casa es su casa, Right. So it's important to look at. A lover of what is good. Do we enjoy the good things in life? And I mean good, not, in, you know, not um, self-indulgent. I mean good things. Do we enjoy what God in, enjoys? Good people, you know, good conversation. Twelve, sober-minded. person has to have a good head on their shoulders of a sound mind. You know, not out there. 13, just or upright, good conduct, a person of their word. 14, holy. And some people are scared of this word, but it's very simple. An oversimplification is that the longer I'm a believer, the longer I follow Christ, five years, 10 years, 15 years, I look back and I say, gee, I used to look like the world. Now I look more like Jesus than I do of the world. And we never arrive. We never get to the finish line and say, hey, I'm great. While we're on this side of eternity, we still have to be conformed into the image of Christ. And 15, self-controlled, disciplined. And this epitomizes much of the former, right? Can we have power over the flesh? I'm going to give you another analogy, and then I'm going to kind of bring it together, okay? My wife talked me into getting a, a dog, a few months ago. We have four cats and a bunny and outdoor creatures. Didn't think we needed a dog, but you know, she made some good points. It's, it's, it's for our son. Oh, okay, sure, we need the dog now. Anyway, he was, she is a pit bull rescue. Right? She's actually very good. I did all the tests with her, and she's very strong, very muscular, very high energy, but she's very gentle. So she actually kind of renewed my love for jogging. So I put her on a long leash, and I run, and she runs next to me. So we're jogging down the street one day, and a few doors down, there's a storm door. It's glass. 
and behind the door is a big dog, right? <laughs> and he's barking because he sees her, and he figures out how to open the latch on the door and pushes the door open. And here comes this big dog charging at us full speed. Now, I had a few thoughts in my mind. <laughs> and when you think of these things, it really happens in a microsecond. My first thought was, well, maybe we'll tear off back down towards our house. But then I thought, he's coming. He's too big. He's too fast. His legs are too long. He'll catch us. And he'll probably nip me in the butt, which I really don't want. So my next thought was anger. I was actually angry. How dare that dog come after us? So, you know, I'm trained to deal with crisis situations, and I'm going to ready to take this dog on. <laughs> Thank God the third thought won over the first two. So the third thought was, well, just stand your ground and do the best you can. So I took her long leash, and I coiled it up real tight around my hand, and now she was like this far, my hand to her leash. And I, I had her. I was ready. I bladed myself. The dog came, sort of like Tor Toro the bull, and he lunged at her. And I pulled her back, and he went that way. So what I did was, after that, he's coming back. And I'm like, thinking, how long is this going to go on for? <laughs> so, so I'm between the two dogs now, and I'm holding her, and I'm lifting her. And she's probably like, Daddy, what are you doing to me? You know? And I'm getting in between him and her, and he's kind of going around. We're kind of like doing the merry-go-round thing. Eventually, thank God, their 19-year-old son runs out of the house, grabs the dog, and he's very apologetic. He nipped my girl in the butt once, but I can live with that. When I left that situation, one of my emotions was, was angry. You know, I was upset. And I'm thinking I should have I hit the dog. I should have hurt that dog and taught him a lesson. But I didn't. And here's the deal. I didn't know why I should have done what I did. I don't know why I thought that. But two weeks later, that same kid ended up at our crossroads meeting on Friday night, and he heard Pastor Vinny preach God's word. Now, do you think if I would have banged up his dog <laughs> that he would have been there? You know? I got to tell you, sometimes in life, and, and you may feel this way, sometimes in life you may be feeling the leash tighten up. You may be feeling yourself being lifted off, off the ground and saying, Father, what are you doing? Did you forget me? Did you forsake me? Are those promises for Pastor Joe and everybody else, but not for me? You may feel like that. You may not know why he's restraining you. You may not know why he's taking you in a different direction. But, and it may not be revealed in this side of eternity, but a lot of times it is. And later on, you'll see that the world looks at us and they say, well, you could have fought back. You could have fought for yourself. You could have got what you deserve. You could have got justice, but you chose mercy. And the world is attracted to that. If you're going to win someone to Christ, you've got to have self-discipline. You've got to have self-control, right? So, and that's what this is all about. It's about not just getting my way. And I'm going to tell you, I want to live my life and get what I want in the flesh. I want to enjoy myself. I want to do what I want to do. I want my time for me. But that's not reality if I choose to serve the Lord. So consider that. I know today, between the rats and the dogs, it's like Animal Planet Sunday, but... <laughs> I tell you what, though, when you see the fruits of what God does, and he does it through you, how exciting it is. And then everything else, it goes away. 
it doesn't pale, it doesn't compare. It's, it's awesome. Okay, <laughs> 16, holding fast the faithful word which has been taught. Now, there's an element here of courage and withstanding opposition. 17, using sound doctrine to exhort and convict those who contradict. I have a rule. If I am within the world and I see those who don't know the Lord and they say ridiculous things about the Bible and things that they think that they know, I'm very gentle with them. If I'm around a Christian who claims to be a Christian and they say weird things and they're into weird doctrine, I correct them. The Apostle Paul, do you realize, had that double standard as well? Sometimes double standards are okay. And I hear this. Well, the person's my friend and I don't want to hurt the friendship. Well, first of all, you need to love them enough to show them the truth. And number two, you need to love everyone else that they're spouting this stuff off to. Love them enough to correct your friend. So there's going to be times where we're going to have to have a, muster up a little bit of courage and oppose, not violently, but say, hey, you know, that's wrong. You know, the Bible doesn't say that. That's just weird. We, we have enough out there that make Christianity look weird. We don't need any more. Trust me. Now, I would say this as for a pastor, too. A pastor who ignores problems in his church needs to get out of being a pastor. Find an easy job like being a police officer or something. <laughs> Verse 10, for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, quote, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, end quote. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. This is why we need courage. Once we find those that have the character that's right, then the courage comes into play. You know, we're not to be built up and to have this character and then just kind of do nothing with it. You know, when God pours into us, he expects a rate of return on his investment. We see this in the parable of the talents, don't we? And the minas. He expects something in return. And he's God. He can expect that. If we applied that to a person, we would, we would kind of crinkle our eyebrows. But he's God. He's perfect. He loves us. He, he knows the truth. He knows the end from the beginning. And maybe he's going to use some of us to save those who don't know him. Now, in the context, Crete had some serious issues. But this can apply to any church today. That's why it's called the living word. 2,000 years later, thousands of miles away, here it applies. Two things, satanic distraction, the, the, the uh, idea in this, this false teachers is to distract the pastor and to also detract from the message. So you've got two issues going on. So a few things. Number one, insubordinate. Let's go through the words again. Insubordinate means rebellious, unruly. Maybe they just march to the, the beat of their own drum. Uh, maybe they hear the sermon every Sunday for years, but don't apply it to their heart. Idle talkers. They're empty. 
they tell others to do, but they don't do. Jesus said that about the religious leaders. These guys were the, the top of the top. You had a, a problem or a question about God. You went to these Pharisees. But Jesus says, you know, they, they say, but they don't do. They want you to do, but they won't lift a finger to do. So they're idle talkers. There's an emptiness in there. And, and deceivers. You know, somebody who's uh, parasiting off the church. There's a certain type of cult that... Um, they just look for established churches. They don't want to put in the sacrifice. They don't want to put in the time, the energy uh, to start their own church, but they want to siphon off already established churches. And they're, they're around today as well. They're deceivers. And verse 11, whose mouths must be stopped. The proverbial put a sock in it. Now, this doesn't mean through violence. It means that, you know, do your job and do an investigation. Rebuke, expose, and remove at times. And they, he says they subvert whole households. Now, this is important because what I said in the beginning in Crete, a lot of these um, areas of Christianity, again, there was no buildings like we see here today. They met in uh, homes uh, during persecution. They met in caves. They met in sewage systems. I mean, but hey, they would meet anywhere to fellowship and to build each other up in the word. So subverting whole households could have been very dangerous. It could have wiped out the truth in a particular pocket or in a particular town. So this is, this is uh, concerning. And verse 12, he said, or he quotes Epimenides. If you're familiar with him, he was a Cretan philosopher who lived roughly 600 B.C. Epimenides made this comment about Cretans, how they were liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So he's amongst his own, and he's characterizing the situation or the uh, society at the time. And verse 13, he says, rebuke them sharply. And the goal is that they may be sound in the faith. Uh, I've heard this said that if a parent who enjoys spanking their kids is not doing it right, there's something wrong there. Or a pastor who enjoys disciplining his congregation, uh, there's something wrong there. And that's the truth. Here's the goal. We don't discipline, we don't rebuke sharply just because we want to get it off our chest and because somebody's annoying me. We do it that they may be sound in the faith. We discipline our children that they may become good, productive members of society, that they don't hurt themselves or others. So there's always a goal. It's not just to get something off of our chest. Um, there's a proverb, 27.5, that says, open rebuke is better than love concealed. So do we really love someone if we never tell them the hard things? According to Proverbs, no. Sometimes it's, and listen, who wants to take a friend aside and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, we need to talk. And by the look on your face, they're like, uh-oh. You know, and it could be confrontational. They, you may lose that friend or that brother or sister, and they may walk away from you for a time, but it's necessary. It's needful. Well, here he's talking about those who are peddling some pretty bad stuff, and he wants them to change. Now, what a blessing it is that, and, and I would just say this, if you don't try, you know, you're not gonna, there's no gain to it. If you've got 10 difficult people and you can rebuke all 10, and two of them turn around, and they become awesome ministry people. They become awesome leaders. Isn't it worth it? I think sometimes in, in our culture where everything's fast food, everything's quick, we want things quickly. We want our marriages to be fixed, fixed quickly. We want to make money quickly. You know, that's the, the mindset. When you're dealing with people, it doesn't happen like that. You know, one session, blah, 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 now go do this and be perfect. It doesn't happen. When it comes to people, we need to put our time in with others. But there's a reward in it. Now, verse 14. 
This was the situation, not giving heed to Jewish fables, commandments of men who turned from the truth. There was a few things going on. There was Jewish legalism. So the Jews had, who had re- received their Messiah were still hanging on to some elements of the law that they shouldn't have been. Uh, they were saying that you have to be Jewish first before you could become Christian. There was all these things that were going on. They elevated their tradition, and some denominationalists have a real problem with that. You know, their tradition is so ingrained and so strong that they can't part with it, but it may not be biblical. And mysticism. Mysticism is dangerous. Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. You know, that's an oxymoron. Because God condemns mysticism in the Torah. You can't be Jewish and be a Kabbalist. You can't. It doesn't work. Because God says it's demonic. You know, but I am a Jewish. No, you're not, according to the scripture. So these three things were going on at the time. And you may say, boy, that's weird. How could the church deal with that? Well, it happens today, too. You know, Saturday morning, you may get a knock on the door. The Jehovah Witnesses may come. There are a few million strong in the United States. And they believe that Jesus was just a man. And if you ask two or three Jehovah Witnesses, how do you get to heaven? They'll probably give you two or three different answers. But ingrained in part of it is that you have to obey the law. You know, you have to do good deeds. And they're heavily focused on good deeds. So there's a legalism there. And they also have some strange tales. They believe that Jesus, when he was in heaven, was a lesser God next to God the Father, who is Almighty God. And then when Jesus came to, to earth, he kind of morphed into a man. And then when he was resurrected, he became the archangel Michael. That's three different forms, God, man, and angel. You know, they're very confused. It's, it's mysticism. It's bizarre. Seventh-day Adventists do the same thing. Uh, Ellen G. White, her testimonies to the church, if you read that book, it's held as equal to the Bible or higher. They control what you're going to do. They control how you uh, interact with others. It's very legalistic and controlling, right? That's problematic. When I, when, uh, every, every other Wednesday, I recycle plastic and paper. Satan recycles heresies. Every few hundred years, hey, no, everyone's forgot about that one. Let's bring that up in a different form. Arianism was a fourth century heresy that kind of laid low for a while until the 1800s with Jehovah's Witnesses. That's a, a new form of Arianism. Look it up. It's all there. Verse 15, probably one of the most misquoted verses in Scripture. It's up there. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and their conscience are defiled. Now, a lot of this had to do with diet. The legalists were big into, you know, don't eat a certain type of meat, don't eat this on a certain type of day. So there was some weird thing about, and we we see this today as well, dietary constraints and uh, certain constraints dietary will make you more spiritual. And Paul had to continually oppose that. But to the pure, all things are pure. Like Paul said, don't ask questions where that meat was sacrificed to. Just eat it. Unless you're going to stumble someone who's a weaker believer, then don't eat it. But to the pure, all things are pure. But to the, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Even their mind and their conscience is defiled. See that there are some elements that everything they look through in their glasses is, an, is, a, is a filthy, dirty um, spectacle lens that they, they, they look through. So here... In Paul's case, it was, uh, and, and Titus's case, this legalistic rules that you had to do. Uh, and what it was is it was really a facade because the inside was bad. Right? Jesus spoke about that. The religious leaders, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're beautiful on the outside. They took the lime solution and made them bright and pretty. But inside, you're full of dead men's bones. 
So that's what often happens with legalists. When they're not right on the inside, they keep doing these external things because they have to cover the filth that's on the inside. Now, in general, um, there is a certain element that every, everything is, is an evil opportunity you know, uh, to the defiled. Everything they, they look towards, everything they see, everything they get involved in, it's some type of uh, evil opportunity. Or, or that person at work, everything that you say, it could be something innocuous. To them, it's a dirty joke, you know? So to the defiled, nothing is pure. Their mind is always in that place. It's always looking for something bad. Verse 16. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. In other words, actions speak louder than words. Right? Behavior and mindset have to go together. It's all throughout the scripture. Few things. Number one, abominable, detestable, disgusting, idolatrous. I like to throw some synonyms in there. Uh, disobedient, just refusing to obey what God has said in His Word. And three, disqualified, cast away, rejected, reprobate. reprobate. Person does it to themselves. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but this person's doing good works. But in, in essence, God is saying, don't do me any favors. If it's not going to permeate through your inside, if you're, if you're not going to do it according to my word and my standards, your good works, Isaiah, Pastor Vinny quoted this last Sunday, Isaiah 64, 6, your good works are like filthy rags. They don't mean anything. It doesn't get us to heaven. It doesn't make us look better. It doesn't, we don't earn points with God. When the change happens on the inside, then it, it transcends to the outside. It radiates. We do good works, not because we're working towards a goal, but we do good works because we're just so blessed by what God has done. He's shown me grace. He's shown me mercy. This is exciting to me. I want to do this. I don't stress myself out. I, I do it with joy. There's a right and a wrong way to do good works. And, and he, he kind of uh, uh, brings that out here. What we do see is, if we take this as a whole, is that Paul used some very harsh adjectives. Can we agree upon that? Pretty harsh. Now, if he was to come to a church today in New Jersey, uh, although many Christians say they quote his works, they quote his scripture, they love reading his letters, I don't know so much, and I've said this before, if he was here in the, person, in the flesh and God brought him back, that everybody would really like him that much. Right? I mean, he would have some things to say to pastors and leaders. He would have to say to some things in uh, people in general. Maybe he was a little crusty, you know? Certainly a loving guy, but when he had something to say, he just he let it out. Maybe some would invite him, but after he spoke, they wouldn't invite him back. You know? We'll stick with the letters, you know. Thanks, thanks anyway. You know, don't call us, we'll call you. But I think the conclusion here as we look at this is character and courage. When the Apostle Paul wrote to Titus, this was the situation. They were the Judaizers. They were the ones who watched what you ate and said you weren't spiritual. They, they had the mysticism. They looked at genealogies and they would make things up and uh, speculate about things that we have no idea about. Uh, and that was the situation there. 2,000 years later, what is God saying to our church through this letter? What is God saying to you personally through this letter? Number one, character. If we look at some of these adjectives and we're not there, Lord, I'm not there. Quiet, alone, just between you and the Lord. There's some things, Lord, I really need to work on and I need your help. Number two, courage. Courage is very important. 
God doesn't build us up in character and, and not expect us to be courageous in what we do. Uh, I told a funny story. Um, every time I think about it, I laugh. Years ago, I went to serve a warrant with another officer. And, uh, you know, this guy might have been the frequent flyer, bad dude. And I'm going up to the house with my partner, and he says, I hope he's not there. And I said, why? He goes, because I'm not confrontational. <laughs> like, uh-oh, I'm dead today. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If we're called to be God's people, it's not just for leaders. It's not just for pastors. We're called to have courage. We're called to have a spine. We're called to speak up. And you know what the challenge is? To speak up in love. Not always an easy thing. Very challenging. But God doesn't call us to do the easy thing. He calls us to do the right thing. And when sometimes we believe that God is, is, is bringing us up for a certain task, we do say, Lord, this is like an impossible thing to do. But that's why we have the Holy Spirit. You see, in the flesh, none of these things are possible. They're not possible. Starting with getting to heaven, none of this stuff is possible. But in the Spirit, with Christ, all things are possible. So courage is important. You see, we face a very crafty enemy. And I think we live in a time where, and uh, Michael Youssef, it's Michael, Dr. Michael Youssef, and he said it well. You know, we live in a time where there's a sanitizing of, of the truth, of the gospel. And here's the deal. You know, we're running up the hill to fight the proverbial battle, and we can see the enemy. And the enemy's firing on us, and we're firing back. But the problem is, in today's Christianity, watered down, is that there are people behind us wearing our same colored uniforms, and they're shooting us from behind. That's the trouble. You know, that's why I have to name names from the pulpit. Because they're lying to their congregation. I don't care that they can fill up a football stadium. It's not the truth. So we're getting it from the back and we're getting it from the front. And we need to have our spiritual armor on. So today as we close, this isn't just for Paul. This isn't just for Titus. This isn't just for Timothy. It's for us as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you as always how you minister to us through it. And Lord, I have no doubt with some of the illustrations and some of the scriptures.